Malachi. Last week, we looked at the shortest dispute that God had with the people. There are six of those disputes or arguments. That's the way the book is structured. So that was the shortest one. This is the longest one. So we're going to break it up into part A and part B uh, because chapter 2, 1 to 9 is the second part of this dispute or this section. But we'll read from Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, why have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord of hosts? Cursed be the cheat who has a meal in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Thus reads God's word. In 1977, Maria Rubio was making a burrito in the state of New Mexico when she noticed the skillet marks on her tortilla resembled, in her opinion, the face of Jesus. Her friends all agreed. Her priest blessed the tortilla, albeit reluctantly. He'd never done that before. And her husband said the tortilla blessed their lives and their marriage. Maria put the burrito in a frame with a cotton background, giving the sense of a, a floating face on heavenly clouds. Her husband built an altar and a shrine in the back garden, and visitors started to take notice. Actually, within months, 8,000 people had come. Two years later, that had risen to over 35,000 people. For 28 years, people came to visit what was called the Shrine to the Holy Tortilla. I kid you not. And in 2005, Mrs. Rubio's granddaughter took this into the classroom for show and tell. And disaster struck. Dropping the frame, it shattered, and the tortilla was fragmented, and no one cared to visit it anymore. 
This is bizarre and unusual superstition, but the elements of the story are not that unique. People claim this kind of stuff online all the time. Someone says they've seen Jesus' face in just about every household item. People worship these images and they think that they are revering God by doing so. I read this story in a news article, but I also read it in a, in a book called Worship, the Ultimate Priority. And the author said, if you're not a true worshiper, everything else in your life will be spiritually out of sync. On the other hand, nothing will accelerate your spiritual growth and sanctification than gaining a right understanding of true worship. There are many distorted views of worship. And if we gain a biblical understanding of the worship God desires, our spiritual growth will be accelerated. But if we distort worship to be whatever we desire, and we delude ourselves into thinking God will be pleased with it, we're in for a rude awakening in Malachi 1. After such an astounding declaration of God's love for Israel in verse 2, God says in verse 6, they are despising him. He is not pleased with the worship that he's been receiving at his altar. Sometimes we may assume that the church has less to be concerned with in terms of how we worship, since we are free from the very messy, bloody animal sacrifices and the rituals that came at the physical temple or the tabernacle of the Old Testament. But what we read in the New Testament is not less demanding worship. It is whole life, total heart commitment, which has always been what God delights in. Now, I said that the New Testament is demanding regarding worship. A couple of examples. Paul in Romans 12 urges us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Whenever Martha was serving supper, different occasion, Mary took a pound of super expensive perfume and she anointed Jesus' feet with it. Luke says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And that's interesting because the Old Testament worship had incense that was burned and it filled the house of the Lord with a fragrant incense that was pleasing to him. But incense became a symbol of pleasing worship. We sing, and we will sing tonight, this life is an altar where I want to offer my soul, my mind, and my strength. Let me be a pleasing sacrifice. And that's the idea. But how often do we, like Malachi's audience, get it wrong? Whenever we offer so little to God, when we turn open our Bibles infrequently, when we turn to God in prayer half-heartedly, when we turn up for church irregularly, or when we turn open our Bibles, turn to God in prayer, and turn up for church very regularly, but we do so out of religious compulsion, not loving gratitude. God delights in neither, because both represent deficient worship. So Malachi's message tonight is essentially this. Dishonor of God is demonstrated by deficient worship. Now, there's a flow to this dispute between God and Israel, and you'll see that on the next slide. We see God's case presented and God's response provided. But firstly, God's case presented. And it's simply this. 
you've offered me woeful worship. Alliteration makes a point so that the hearer pays attention. Maybe you'll notice the alliteration in Abraham Lincoln's 1863 Gettysburg Address. He said, government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. Lots of P. Well, nearly half of the words in verse 6, we don't know this from English, but nearly half of the words in the original begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This seems to be deliberate. Malachi's audience were told to listen up. This is a serious matter to God. God's saying, pay attention, Israel. I care about my honor. Those I love must respect me. Honor is the same word as glory, and it it refers to a weightiness or a heaviness. In this case, referring to the, the weight of glory that the Lord of hosts alone is worthy of. And so God reasons with them. Verse 6, a son honors his father. If it's right for a son to honor his earthly father and for a servant to respect their master, so far the Israelites are nodding in agreement, yes, then how much more honor is due to me, your heavenly father, who called you out of Egypt, my firstborn son, and delivered you from your slave masters? The entire covenant community are responsible for dishonoring God by offering him meager sacrifices. But notice that God holds the priests especially accountable. They were charged with leading the worship. And as worship leaders, they set an example. Large portions of the Old Testament, particularly books like Leviticus, made it abundantly clear what God demanded in worship. The priests knew Yet their defiant pushback to God's charge is, how have we despised your name? What are you talking about, God? Don't we bring you the food you commanded us? How is this despising your name? And you'll see references to God's name in every chapter of Malachi's short prophecy. God's name encompasses his identity, who he is, his character, what he's like, and his authority. We talk like this sometimes. If I ask someone if they can recommend a good plumber to me, they might say, well, that Roy Skinner fella gets a good name. And then I'll ask someone else. Just kidding, Roy. But how did Israel's worship show that they disrespected God's name? The answer is half-hearted worship. Think about this. Whenever you have guests round for a meal and Your lasagna hasn't come out evenly cooked with that lovely, crispy, charred, cheesy topping the whole way through in equal measure. You look at it and you say, well, I'm going to have to give the guests the best portion and I'll take the other bit for myself. Or you do the same thing if you don't have enough chairs. You give the guests the honor of sitting in the good chairs and you take the lowly position. Like verse 6, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If that's how you honor dinner guests, how great should be the honor you give to God? Israel seemed to have reversed this. By offering blind, lame, and sick animals, they were not giving God substandard sacrifices by accident or in ignorance. They knew what they were doing. God plainly states in verse 8, for example, that it was evil. 
And Israel's priests knew that it was evil. Leviticus and Numbers have dozens and dozens of references to the need for the sacrifice to be without blemish. They were to ensure that only the best portions were offered to God. But the priests Malachi addressed couldn't care less what God was given. They were actors, merely playing their role as priests, but not even good actors because they didn't even pretend to do their job wholeheartedly. Their duty had replaced devotion. If that ever happens to a Christian, they've lost or forgotten their first love. Unlike my predecessor here, Chris, at school, I hated art. And in every art homework, I did the bare minimum to meet my obligation. I loved my Xbox, so I gave it maximum time and effort. If your worship is void of heart devotion to God, you will do the bare minimum. If your worship is from a transformed heart, you seek to do the maximum for the God you love, knowing, as we found out last week, that he loved you first. God knows how much we love him. It's clear to him in the worship that we offer. Now, giving God half-hearted worship can show itself in multiple ways, but it does have a lot to do with how we approach our times of gathered worship on the Lord's Day. Zambian pastor Conrad Mbewe puts it like this. Now it's Sunday. There's no effort to put an alarm in your watch. Even when you wake up, you're turning in your bed like a dog on a hinge this way and that. And then, ah, we're late. We'll just watch church in our blanket online. And you're answering WhatsApp messages and you're scrolling on your screen while the pastor preaches. And somehow you still expect God to bless abundantly. Try that with your court or doctor's appointment or job interview, he says. All of that addresses symptoms, maybe symptoms that he found in his church. But the problem actually originates in our hearts because those outer symptoms reflect an inner disease. When we make worship about ourselves or we offer God what we think he should want rather than what he's commanded, we are doing an evil thing. When we give God half-hearted or external-only devotion, he says we are despising him. Now, despise means to treat with contempt. Whenever Esau despised his birthright for a bowl of stew, same word, he was despising what God had given. Here, Israel as a whole seemed to be despising or treating with contempt. Not their birthright, that would be bad enough, but the very God who saved them. Now, they're deeply offended that God would accuse them of such wicked behavior. But again, he sees straight to the heart behind their actions and says, you're offering me rubbish, and it tells me exactly what you think of me. He says, you wouldn't offer this to your governor. Now, the governor mentioned tells us that we're in the period when the Persians ruled Judah. And God shows that his people had more fear for their regional Persian administrator than for their God. God had given a provision for the priests. Whenever they collected the tithe and the produce from the people, God ensured that they would get a share in both. 
And so you might read this and wonder, why would they take defective animals? There's a couple of possibilities. Maybe it was easier to persuade people to give if they only had to persuade them to give their worst animals. They thought to themselves, well, the sick animals will die anyway. Deformed animals are worthless in the market. So we may as well encourage the people to bring them to God, and that way we'll get more food. Accepting substandard offerings also made it seem like more people were worshipping, and the priests still got a decent meal out of it. The only one who lost out was God. Sixty years ago, God's prophet Zechariah said, when you eat and drink, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Now, this speaks to two major problems in some modern church worship. We've already considered one, duty replaces devotion, but it also speaks to pragmatism. Now, what do I mean by that? There can be a temptation to cut corners or compromise on God's standards in church, which are justified to fill buildings or to increase social media presence. The thought seems to be, let's make our churches so broad theologically to get more people on the seats. Don't ask much of them. Don't be preachy or tell them what God demands of them. And we'll see plenty of growth. You won't see plenty of spiritual growth. Now, I know we don't do that here. I know that. But it is a real problem in many churches today. And it must be avoided. Why? Because God says his very honor is involved. To sum up, going through the motions dishonors God. But so does going through the methods, often methods of businesses and how they grow, trying to apply them to church to strategize and how to get more people. So I repeat, going through the motions dishonors God. But so does going through the methods. And so this was God's case presented Now we come to God's response provided, and there's two parts to this response. And the first one is simply this. God rejects half-hearted worship. He refuses to accept it. If you look at verse 9 with me, verse 9 is actually dripping with sarcasm. Essentially, God is saying, now that I've exposed your useless offerings that you wouldn't dream of giving to your governor, see what happens when you pray for favorable treatment from me. See how gracious I will be to you while you despise me. This speaks to the danger of presuming upon God's grace. We know grace is a free gift. We know we don't earn it. And if Christ is our Savior and Lord, we know we can't lose it. But that is no license to sin. Offering God woeful worship and then assuming he'll show us favor. Paul would say, Are we continuing in our sin that grace may abound? By no means. Later in Romans again, he says, are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. And God can discipline his children to cause them to recognize this sin, to repent and to be restored in love. But then God's righteous anger is seen even more in verse 10 where he says he would rather the priests shut the doors of the temple completely because he will not be there to receive worship that means nothing to them and even less to him. 
And sometimes God does close the doors of a church because what they propagate is nothing like worship. And maybe they compromise on biblical truth to accommodate the world. One evangelical Anglican recently found this in his own research. To date, no growing church has adopted same-sex marriage. All of these denominations hold firmly to historic Christianity. Indeed, they are all evangelical in doctrine, the growing churches. Similarly, in a Scottish Reformed Presbyterian newspaper, it was found that most churches closing their doors were churches that had abandoned biblical doctrine. This closing of church doors is exactly what Jesus warned the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. God rejects half-hearted worship, and he also rejects man-centered worship. Now, we'll come to the good news of verse 11 in a moment, but I want you to skip down to verses 12 to 14 with me. The priests were saying, what a drag. Serving God is too hard. It's too tiring. And what do we get out of it? If you turn your nose up at God's command to worship, what your attitude is really saying is, it's not fair. Woe is me. If I were in charge, I would do it better. Whenever we complain about the work that God's given us, we demonstrate a spirit of discontentment, ultimately, with God himself. We're implying that we think we would do better if only we were in charge. One day, Jesus was teaching in Capernaum. And he was in the synagogue, and many of his disciples were there, and they said, this is a difficult teaching. Who can accept it? And John tells us that Jesus was aware that they were grumbling against him, and he challenged them because he knew that some of them did not truly believe. And in the end, many of those disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. But there are many today who have this same attitude to Jesus' teaching. It's too demanding. A few weeks ago, Cormac Walsh was here in the evening, and I remember something that he said that stood out to me. He was asking someone in Dublin if they believed in God, and they said, I'm chill. And I thought, wow. Think about that. I'm chill. Implying, of course, that we're not chilled out enough. We're not relaxed enough. It should never be the case amongst true believers that we have a propensity for laziness and self-pity in our worship. But it is true, even if you've been serving Christ for a relatively long time, you can grow weary, maybe a little bit apathetic, especially when you don't see the results that you've prayed for for a long time. Although he was speaking primarily to pastors, one author said this, and I think this is helpful. When we lose hold of the love of God, a tragedy starts to play out in our hearts. The tragedy is that we see God as a master only. He is the boss, while we are busily engaged and often exhausted in his work we lose sight of the liberating truth that he is also lover, friend, encourager, comforter. What could be more tragic in any believer's life but that he would wear himself or herself away to skin and bone, starving himself of the very grace they seek to proclaim to others? 
that's a real danger. Ministry of all kinds, whatever you're involved in, if you're a Christian, you're involved in ministry. And it should always be motivated by an outflow of love for the Lord who saved you by his grace and filled you with joy. And as we were reminded this morning, the very power of the Holy Spirit. If our ministry is merely religious duty, it will cripple us and those we minister to. If it becomes a weariness as it did to Israel's priests, we'll fall for the temptation to make shortcuts. God restates his charge against them from verse 7, again in verses 12 to 14. They're profaning God's very name by offering exactly what he told them not to offer him in worship. In verse 8, God asked if their governor would accept these things. And now he says, shall I accept that from your hand? Verse 13. Well, as I said before, they knew the answer. Centuries before, God said through Amos to a people who offered the right animals from loveless hearts, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. So if God wouldn't accept the right offerings given without love, he certainly wouldn't accept the wrong offerings given without love. Then in verse 14, God zooms out from this, this dispute with the priests because he wants to address all the people. They had made a, a voluntary promise or a vow to bring God an unblemished animal. And then they broke this promise and gave something worthless. And the priests allowed this. Why? Because they were doing it too. Like people, like priests, Hosea said. Leaders can't expect their people to grow in holiness if they're not. And so God calls church elders to set an example for their flock. And if the example they set is one of loveless, routine worship, then they can't expect their flock to be built up in love or faith in God. We should be able to emulate the example of our leaders. If a, a big team started a load of substitutes in their starting squad at the Rugby World Cup, and they assumed they'd easily beat the other side because no one had really ever heard of them, they could easily get thoroughly embarrassed because they, ex they assumed that a cheap substitute would be sufficient. What God's saying to Malachi's audience, and I think to us, is God is worthy of all of our praise, time, energy, treasures, sacrifice. Don't give him a cheap substitute. <clears throat> he won't accept it. Not only will he not accept a cheap substitute for worship, he promises in verse 11, or right at the very end of verse 14, that he will receive the worship that is due. Perhaps the most ominous words of any Marvel villain came when arch-villain Thanos declared after the end credits of 2015's Age of Ultron film. What he said, essentially what he wanted, was all living things to fear him. But everyone that he'd sent down had failed to do his bidding. And then comes his famous line, fine, I'll do it myself. Thanos resolved to ensure that his power and authority were unquestioned. 
unlike all evil rulers who seek universal unchecked power, Thanos would be humble. But consider what our great God proclaimed to Judah back in verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And then skip down to the very end of verse 14. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Notice how committed God is to ensuring that his name, that is his reputation, his character, his glory, is magnified across the globe. Eight times name is repeated in this section. In verse 11 alone, name is repeated three times at the start and the middle and the end of the verse. God is declaring that one day he will be magnified among the nations. Now, I don't know if I've heard a a missions sermon preached from this text, but this is at the heart of missions, isn't it? To make God's name great among the nations. What was the purpose of all of the acts of the apostles? Was it not to demonstrate the power and authority in the name of the Lord? Over 30 times, the apostles speak in the name, they heal in the name, they declare salvation is found only in the name of Jesus Christ, and so they're partially fulfilling this very promise of God from Malachi. But this is also being fulfilled every day that God saves more and more sinners by his grace. We are saved that we might make known God's name in all the world. John saw a day when a great multitude no one could count from where? From every nation, from every tribe, people, and language who would praise God and the Lamb. When Christ rules, he will receive worship from every nation. Malachi's perspective is much wider than the return of Israel from exile. He's talking about a day when all nations will bow the knee to Messiah Jesus. But first, there are these sobering words for those who are cheating God out of his glory. Cursed be the cheat who has a meal in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. God's pronouncing a curse on the one who holds back this choice meal in their flock, not because they had to give that particular animal, but because they'd already promised to do so and they broke that vow. Ecclesiastes says it's better not to vow to God at all and not fulfill it. Soon we'll see in Acts the danger of doing this very thing. When Ananias and Sapphira make a vow and don't fulfill it, they hold some of their produce back. They deceive the Holy Spirit. They were free to not give everything, but they promised to do so, and they lied to God's spirit, and their punishment was instant death. How seriously we need to take worship. It's not a trivial matter to God. Why do you think the New Testament keeps using sacrifice language to describe our worship to God? Paul described the gift the Philippians sent to him as an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. The author of Hebrews writes, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. So there's two examples. One is missionary support. 
The other is confessing Christ as Lord. They're both considered to be acceptable sacrifices. God is pleased with these kind of things. And then maybe you could think of other ways that you can offer a fragrant offering, a pleasing sacrifice in our daily worship of God. Don't know if you've considered applying for short-term or medium-term missions teams. It's a good use of your summer, whatever your age, whatever time you have, whenever. Is there a way that you could use the gifts that God has given you to serve this church and serve its people? Men, how are we leading at home? Do we consider how scripture tells us to nourish and cherish our wives? Do we ensure that we model godliness to our children, training them to be equipped in the battlefield for their minds in the school and on every device that they use? Women, how are you submitting to your husbands as to the Lord? Do we even consider that how we act in all of our personal relationships is an opportunity to offer God worship. But we don't come to God through ceremony, sacrifices like this, external shows of obedience. We come to God through Christ's one-time sufficient sacrifice by faith. But we are still required to marry our faith with evidence of that faith. We are required to offer our whole selves to God. So we give, not under compulsion, but gratefully. We go wherever God calls us to go. We pray honest, open prayers without fake shows of religiousness. And we sing with transformed, thankful hearts and mouths. We cannot be one day a week devotees. God is not interested in that kind of worship. God's son died for us to purchase us for God. If you're believing in him, then you belong to him and you should desire to offer him your whole self because you and I are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God offered us his best, the only truly unblemished sacrifice to atone for our sins. Jesus Christ, the very son of God, offered up his life for us, though we are sinful people. Our response to that ought not to be, how little can I give, but how much can I give to you, my great king? If we offer God deficient worship, we dishonor the one who loves us most. But we can rejoice in the knowledge that when we do offer worship to God from hearts transformed by his spirit, God accepts it in and through his son, the perfect sacrifice. I trust I'm not the only one challenged by God's spirit this evening. Let's respond in prayer. God, take whatever is deficient in our worship and remove it for good. Give us a greater love for who you are and what you've done for us. We humbly acknowledge that so often we offer you a half-hearted devotion. Wherever we should change, please reveal that to us by the Spirit. 
and give us his help to change. Each day, give us a larger appreciation for your son who died for us. Jesus, you've given us everything. How could we hold back our hearts from you? We love you, Lord. Please deepen our affections for you. 